Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am your host, Ian Rice, and with me, as always, Mr. David Hudson. David, how are you, sir? Ian, it's been so long, I feel like I need to introduce myself to you again. Oh, don't be silly. How are you? I'm all right. How you been, man? I'm great. I'm great. Interesting episode this week. We, of course, uh, landed a very, very fine interview with Mr. Kevin Kinney from Driving and Crying, but unfortunately, you weren't able to be on board that day. Could not make it happen with work. I was really worried that uh, Jason Johannes was going to Wally pit me for any old school uh, sports fans out there, but uh, I think uh, everything's good. Hey, I do want to say before we get started, uh, I had COVID a couple weeks ago, and a ton of people that listen to the podcast reached out to me and checked on me during that, and all is good, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, I actually was sick at the Black Crows concert and thought I was just hot. So uh, if you were around me, I tried to find everybody that I knew that was around me and contact them and told them that I tested positive the next day. But uh, I like to call it Crovid. I think it was a Jason Johannes term that. So I had a case of Crovid. Yes, and Mr. Jason Johannes from the All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast did uh, back me up on the interview, did a very, very fine job. And you actually did drop in for a minute or two there. Yeah, I got like one question in, and then uh, I muted my mic. I heard like the last five or so minutes of the interview. I'm excited. I haven't heard the rest of it, so I'm excited to hear it. We had been trying to set this one up for five or six weeks, and finally were able to get it up and going. Yeah, he was a really, really nice guy. Had a very interesting conversation. I, uh, I enjoyed it. The only thing I didn't enjoy was your absence, my friend. Oh, well, flattery gets you nowhere. Um Anyway, you get you everywhere. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I was really excited about it because Kevin Kenny is one of those guys that knows everybody. Even if you're not a fan of driving and crying, you've seen him. You've seen him on things like he plays that Chris Warren Haynes Christmas Jam every year. He's huge buddies as you're here in this podcast with Peter Buck. Driving and crying and the and the Crows have some pretty long standing deep ties. Very 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 well respected musician. Driving and Crying are a great straight-ahead rock band. They have an impressive catalog. Um, they tour pretty relentlessly. Uh, I've never heard anybody say they're, you know, have seen a bad Driving and Crying show. I'm, when this airs, I'm thinking I'm, I'm going to be seeing them the night that it airs. I'm, I'm really excited about seeing them. It's been a while, but yeah, I'm glad we were able to get it. Obviously, they did a run with the Crows around the Southeast, which uh, makes sense. That's probably their biggest hub of fans. Yeah, yeah, and he does touch on the tour experience as well as many, many other things in the interview. But uh, I've more recently become a fan of Driving and Crying, and I've really gotten into their stuff. But I didn't know them, you know, years ago. But uh, what's your what's your relationship with Driving and Crying? They were huge when I was in high school, and I think I kind of told him something to that effect. They had, yeah, it was the um, Fly Me Courageous album. It came out in nineteen ninety. They, there's a song on there called Fly Me Courageous <laughs> that uh, you would hear just blaring from people's speakers on the weekend. They also, the previous album, had two songs that were pretty big, uh, Honeysuckle Blue and Straight to Hell. Straight to Hell is probably their most well-known. Those first like three or four albums 
was familiar with. And then I think I saw, I think I'm pretty sure I saw them in college. They were, I mean, they could do significant numbers in the Southeast back in the early to mid nineties. You know, I mean, they could, they could do five, 600 people, you know, but then they kind of dropped off the radar until, um, started seeing all the stuff with like the Christmas jams and you'd always see Kevin Kenny. So I listened to them a fair amount live. They're really, really good. Hey, if you're listening and like, want a good place to start mystery road album and fly me courageous there's a song that i love on fly me courageous called around the block again that's my favorite driving and crying song but yeah i think they 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 had probably more regional success than they did national success but it's not uncommon to see kevin kenny playing with some heavy hitters which speaks to first of all you have to like him as a person and second of all really respect his musical talent yeah, I mean, he's. Yeah, I'd like to throw into the mix too as a recommendation. His first solo album called McDougal Blues. That is a really, really fantastic album, and uh, you know, a, a kind of a departure from the more rocking, driving and crying stuff. But they're very versatile. They have a lot of influences, and you can definitely hear that. There's all kinds of elements in there. That's what I think is really cool about them. And let's see. Before we go to the interview, Patreon is up and running. Patreon.com forward slash State of America. I mean, we're having a lot of fun. We're giving away a lot of good stuff. First of all, we appreciate everybody joining. But if you want to join, man, we would love to have you on. The more, the merrier. That means the more free stuff we can give out. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, June was a little more quiet due to some uh, extenuating circumstances. But July is going to really kick it up a notch on Patreon. So now's a good time to join if you're so inclined. Ian and I are always buying stuff to give away. And uh, actually, I have another edition of Johnny Colt's fabulous postcards from the edge. I am going to give that away soon. And uh, I do want to say, hey, our buddies, uh, State of Love and Trust Pod, the Pearl Jam podcast we've had on, they just started their uh, Patreon uh, this past weekend. I think I was the second person to join up. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, If you're a Pearl Jam fan and want to consider getting involved in that community, as we uh, certainly think you should, follow them on Twitter. And they're more, they're pretty, really active on uh, Instagram. So, uh, State of Love and Trust Pod, those guys were good to us to come on here and uh, support them. And we should mention our two latest patrons on the site. And that would be Mr. Ryan Oleski and Mr. Michael Jones. Welcome and thank you for joining. And we hope to see more of you soon. Yeah, we had a Zoom hang recently, and we actually recorded it, and we're going to release it at some point as an episode, but we talked about our favorite covers, and his was the most left of center that we had. It was uh, East Virginia Blues, and uh, yeah, Ryan's a good guy. Michael, thanks for joining, and all the rest of you. All right, and as the Shake Your Money Maker Tour rolls merrily along, even though Driving and Crying are not the featured opening act, the tour is still moving along. We did just release that road report episode and we might do another one at the end of the tour maybe get a little compilation thing going so if anybody went to a show and is interested in sharing their opinion can always drop us a line at stateofamorica at gmail.com or get in touch with us on any of the social media platforms yeah howlin rain just wrapped up their run with the crows uh stone temple pilots i know are at least going to open one show that'd be a fun show to go to man i saw stp a couple years ago they still got it yeah. obviously it's not the same without scott wyland but it was a it was a good show so jason donchus maybe uh have him on to do a road report or whatever since stone temple pilots is going to be on that show yeah that's a great idea all right so without further ado i think we're going to throw it over to our kevin kinney interview we'd like to thank mr jason johannes for giving us a hand on this one you can check him out on the all things blues and southern rock podcast david anything else to add before we run over to the kevin kinney interview since i had to sit this one out i'm going to pick the song that transitions to the interview around the block again off the fly me courageous album you got it all right so we're going to hear that tune and then we're going to get right into kevin kinney and we'll see you next time everybody (laughs) 
All right, everybody, we've had many important guests on the program over the last few years, and today is certainly no exception to that rule. Today, we are joined by a man that has had a very successful solo career, participated in numerous collaborations with some of the most important names in music, and most importantly, is the main architect for the seminal rock band Driving and Crying. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Kevin Kinney. Kevin, how are you doing? Hey, we need a little applause. Hey, <laughs> that is a that was a hall of fame intro ian and like kevin now i'm going to be nervous talking to you <laughs> <laughs> so kevin tell us a little bit about the uh the early days of driving and crying the formation of the band and how everything all came together it seems like a very exciting time uh when the band was first getting started um yeah we uh i played down in atlanta with some friends of mine that were in a punk band called die Crates, and 
and me and uh, two of the members, we had a band. We used to play a lot in the Midwest together. I grew up in the Midwest. Brian Ritchie from the Violet Femmes was my best friend from high school. We both grew up at Marshall High School. Cool. And uh, my, one of my first solo shows in Atlanta was opening for the Violet Femmes acoustic. But um, so I have a little history in Milwaukee area, Dykrites and Violet Femmes, oil tasters, Haskells, all that stuff. Um, and I also started the lo- one of the longest running Midwestern magazines called the Ex- called Shepherd Express. And it's now it's called it was just called Express when I did it when uh, when I I founded it with my friend Dave Larson, and um, it was a fanzine kind of thing. So how did you how did you go from there to Atlanta? Well, my brother walked the Appalachian Trail. Uh, he's four years older than me. He walked the Appalachian Trail, wound up in Georgia, and uh, I uh, married his best friend's wife and moved to Georgia. <laughs> We walked the trail together, and then they fell in love, and everything was cool. I went live. So, like in '79, my brother invited me down here to come visit, and I went and visited him. And then, uh, right about '81, I was taking it more seriously. Like, you know, I was working as a, I'd done every job. I worked at the record warehouse, and I did all the jobs. If I was a secretary, a pharmacy technician, a receptionist, a you know, Doug Post, I did everything, you know, it's, uh, it's just like, you know, I just, I just got sick of the cold and, and never going to make it. I mean, I played on Tuesday nights for other bands. So I'm going to go down south and, um, my brother, I got, got me a job working construction, which I was making like six, seven, fifty an hour or something like that, which was a ton of money in 1981, you know? So, um, that's, I, I moved down here to be a construction worker, you know? And that wasn't until Dykreutzen played here. You know, they would stay at our house and make T-shirts. And we would go to the, um, we'd go to Kmart and buy, you know, 100 T-shirts. And then, like, they would print them up in my in my loft here. And, you know, I know the smell of uh, of, uh, of blow-drying <laughs> blow T-shirts, 200 T-shirts. Yeah, let me, I'm going to expand on that a little bit. So... You did not originally move from Milwaukee to Atlanta to pursue music. It was more just a job opportunity to get out of the coal, get out of that industrial home environment. Yeah, Milwaukee pretty much told me that I was never going to have a career in music. So I took that. No, we don't really hear about Milwaukee being this, you know, historically a big music scene. Well, it's a it's a metal scene and it's very avant-garde. I think the Bodines probably were one of the, but the Femmes, you know, Femmes are very, you know, different than Milwaukee's an edgier place. And I, they didn't really, they still don't get me. Like, I just played up there like a little bit ago and I had 80 people. You know, it's, you know, Blackberry Smoke's huge there. Black Crows are huge there. Black yeah. huge there. But they just don't get me. And it's, it's, it's I'm validated every time I play there. 40 people come, I'm like, I'm so <laughs> glad I got out of here. <laughs> it was like me and, I was singing rock and roll by the development underground with Chris with the Black Crows. Yeah. But I'm like 10,000 people. And then 48 hours later, I'm playing in front of 40 people at a, a fundraiser for uh, Guitars for Vets organization that helps uh, teach PTSD veterans the guitar. After 10 lessons, they give you a guitar. So we were do- we, nice. they asked me to come up and do that with Driver Crime. So we did. It was free. It was fucking free. <laughs> and there's like 40 people there. It's like. They just don't get me in Milwaukee, and that's totally okay with me. I'm a, I'm I played every Monday in New York City. 
You know, I played every Monday in New York City at the at the National Underground. I played Gavin DeGraw owned, and uh, me and my Shady Ray was her name. We lived together and we were married for 10 years. Uh, she had this thing called Shady Ray's Truck Stop, which was a really cool Monday night thing. We had Nora Jones and we my bass player was like, yes, and Anton Fear was my drummer and Aaron Lee Tashin. And yeah, it was just a really great Monday night thing. And it was free and it was cool. But I mean, you know, every Monday I'd do straight to hell. And every Monday, some guy from New York would be like, yeah, you should record that song. That's a good one. <laughs> That's, well, maybe put it on an album around. I think I, I, don't I, think know, I put it on nine. <laughs> yeah, I think I have like 19 albums. I think I put it on four of them. <laughs> it would seem that the, 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 the one perk to living in the, in the New York area is there are a lot of artists in New York. So you have a lot, a lot of people to draw from in terms of collaborations. You seem like a guy that's loves collaborations. It's a great place to see a witness, you know, it's a great place to go see me. I'm a music fan. First of all, first off, that's why when I moved to Atlanta, I was excited just to go to the 688 and go see bands in a different bar than the one I'm used to seeing them at. So I was excited to go see the same bands I saw in Milwaukee, except more. And then experienced the Atlanta music scene, which was really, really, uh, it was a really great scene. You know, I really, uh, especially when we were first starting, you know, Think Jet, Mr. Crow's Garden, all that. We did a lot of shows together. It was a communal, you know, Chris reminded me the other day that we built the stage at the this place called The Dugout, which was the Emory Bar. You so, built it as an actual hammer nails working yeah, we actually together? Built the stage, yeah. <laughs> Well, your construction work paid off. Uh, I think I had a tool belt. Yeah. <laughs> you had to use a hammer, you know. I built sewage plants, so I built like concrete things, and I didn't build. I wasn't used to building stages, but it was a. I can figure it out. Yeah. So anyway, I played with Dyke Crichton and uh, Tim. My my bass player Tim had a really popular band here called the Night Porters, and uh, he saw me play in front of eight people, and. Uh, <laughs> And was like, where? Who are you? Where are you from? I said, Well, I moved. I just moved here from Milwaukee. So, all right. And then uh, next thing I knew, he quit his band, and we started driving crying. And he told me I was going to be in his band. And I said, Okay. <laughs> now it seems like a, a lot of bands, a lot of bands at that time, you know, very indie rock sound, very influenced by REM. And I noticed a lot of the the early driving and crying records have that kind of vibe to them. Did was REM and 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 other Athens bands a big influence on you at the time? Um, REM was uh, a, a band I discovered working, you know, I worked at the sewage plant here and I drove to to work every day and I had the reckoning record. So I wasn't indoctrinated in them through the college thing like I uh, most people were. I was more got into them through just being a music fan. And I was like, who are these guys and why are they selling out the Fox Theater here? And so I went and saw them at the Fox. The holy crap, man, this, what a great band. And they were everything I love. I love the, the uh, Bo Brummels was one of my favorite bands. Oh, uh, awesome. Yeah. You know, Love, uh, the, whole Calif- the whole San Francisco kind of thing. And, that, and I, of course, I love the Dream Syndicate. And I love the, um, like, Green on Red and uh, Teardrop Explodes. I loved all the weird, um, darker English things I'd seen in the Milwaukee punk bars, you know, they came through Echo and the Bunnymen. So to me, they were like Echo and the Bunnymen South. And they had a very theatrical look to them. So I was, you know, that was part of our influence, but I think mostly at that time, mostly was, you know, my usual influences are like uh, Nuggets, Garage Rocks, the whole Nuggets, the whole Lenny K, um, Pebbles Nuggets, all that stuff was, our first record is like, uh, a collection. It's like a, we used to tell people it was a record that's like your record. Cl- it's like a mixtape. 
except <laughs> we wrote all the songs. Right. There's like there's some jazz in there, and there's some trying to find just, your sound, or just not trying to find the sound. That was the whole just point. Trying to, whatever, whatever you want to do. Yeah, well, it was like easier to pin your influence. Like Beatles had a limited number of influences, and then, and then the next, the Rolling Stones had a limited number of influences, and then. But as, as you go through the 70s, you got bubblegum, you got Archie's, you got blues, you, got, you know, it's like I, I can't I can't just be like an Archie's band or a Ramones band or a Muddy Waters band or Hollow Wolf. And so it just kind of was like kind of got all mixed up. And so the bands that are around now, you know, like uh, like Rich and Chris turned me on this band, The White Fence from L.A. and uh, Ty Siegel and some others. They, they, Rich and Chris gave me a pretty good little list of stuff lemon twigs and uh uh and things that i should be knowing about from the la thing because i you know i lived in brooklyn for i guess 15 years before i moved back down south and so i know a lot about the more new york lower east side that's my team i ran with you know down there well that uh, that actually explains a little bit because i i became very enamored with uh, your first solo album mcdougall blues Obviously, a reference to the street in the in the lower Manhattan. There, how did that record come to be for you? Because I know it's produced by Peter Buck. You know, a lot of REM contributes, so it's a really fantastic record and very different from what Driving and Crime was doing at that same period. Yeah, our uh, McDougal Blues was a uh, was my first solo record that I've been. I, I kind of enjoy just I kind of say that my solo career is is my main career, and the Driving Crime is my fun career. <laughs> You know, because I—that's the driver car. I just I throw it against the wall. I do it whatever I want. Uh, I'm a little more picky about what I do in my solo sh- things. But basically, Peter, there's a there's a driving crime mystery road uh, box. There's a re-release of the mystery road, and they added a, Island was kind enough to add another disc to it that was the original demos for Mystery Road, which were produced by Peter Buck at John Keane's where R.E.M. did all the demos and Indigo Girls recorded and Widespread Panic, everybody recorded John Keynes. Island um, passed on letting him produce Mystery Road, but gave him like a consolation prize of doing my first solo record, which was that McDougal Blues. A lot of the demos for McDougal Blues are on the, are like the song McDougal Blues is on the Mystery Road demos. Honeysuckle Blues, Straight to Hell, they're all on the demos. So uh, it was kind of a byproduct of mystery road so it was very good it was with a really it's just a, basically a story about a guy goes to a scene and the scenes the scene's gone like a guy goes to new york city and you know it's not what he thought it was going to be because it's all you know it's the 80s so it's like <laughs> but it's also a story it's also a nod to the indigo girls who actually went to new york their, their first time in new york city they had their car stolen so like they lost mm. all their gear and their car uh, they told me that like on their first time they ever picked me up, they, you know, they used to pick me up at my house. We do some shows together sometimes. And um, in the song McDougal Blues, I re-recorded it with Peter. I did an addendum. I added an extra chapter to the end where it goes, 20 years later, I'm going back to New York town. Give it one more go. I got a show over there across the bridge in Brooklyn. And as I was walking up to my show, there's a line around the block. I said, who's playing here tonight? She said, you are. Uh, <laughs> and then I say, oh, it must have bought my box set. <laughs> said, That's how you make it in New York City. Leave. <laughs> <laughs> they appreciate you when you're gone. Ian, is this true? They appreciate you when you're gone, yeah. It is. They do revere you after you. you know, and then they try to claim you as their own, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, you they know, hate you while you're here. 
So yeah, that's, I kind of moved back to Atlanta for that re- for that reason of like New York is for New Yorkers. You know, I appreciate that. Like I was never going to be a New Yorker. I, I was always they always they always called me Georgia or you know fans of they'd be like, hey, I was at laughter. I'm like Richard. I've lived here like 15 years. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at laughter. <laughs> well, because you do have so, such a pronounced Southern accent, obviously. I guess, but I'm really unless I get mad, then I'm. <laughs> Midwest or Italian, one of the two. You just turn Italian when you get mad. I get angry. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Well, you have to have that to get by in New York, man. You know, it it comes in handy. Like, are you kidding me? What the fuck? That's how you not get your van and all your equipment stolen the first time you show up in New York, Ian. Get get your city under control, would you? We did get we did get mugged the first time we were in, we didn't get mugged we, we had our car broken into the first time we ever went to New York City we had the Waverly Diner and we played at the First Avenue Improv Theater for what was probably called a New Music Seminar or something like that. I can't remember what it was in 1986 and our car got we we drove around all night long we stopped and got it was like six in the morning we're like fuck it we're just gonna get some food we were staying at the the Gramercy Park, but it was back when it was like $69 a night and it was like all kind of beat up and had like furniture in it, old lady furniture in it. So like people live there. <laughs> and this guy, these co- undercover cops come running and go, Hey man, they just stole, they just broke your window and they're, they're running on the street with your stuff. I was like, Oh crap. So I ran after this guy and I saw he had my drummer's backpack and I was like, drop the fucking backpack, motherfucker. <laughs> He's like, what is like? Give drop the fucking backpack. Give me the backpack. So I, I got the backpack back. And I got picked up some of the pedals. We went back to the Gramercy and we went to on the roof. My drummer was doing mushrooms. He's on the roof. And that so sounds like a good combination. I said, I said, dude, the fucking car, the car got broken into. They're like, I knew it. And I know, I'm sorry, man, but said, Paul, I got your backpack. He's like, and I'm a backpack. <laughs> <laughs> So you mug you mug the muggers. My first day in New York City as a rock band, I mugged a guy, <laughs> homeless guy. Well, what, what I want to know that what I what I what's baffling my mind, Kevin, is undercover cops came up to you and said, "Oh, by the way, these guys broke in your car, and you yeah. have to go track them down." They didn't do shit. No, they don't want to. They were like they look they were like Serpico. They looked like real guys, but they had the chain, you know, with the badge. Yeah. Yeah. They're one, it wasn't like they don't want to get sweaty. And uh, why should they? That's okay. That's the uh, that was the old days in New York. It's uh, much different than that now, you know. Much more uh, family oriented, I think. You know, I, I it sounded a lot more fun back then, Ian. To be honest with you, <laughs> it was a little more risky. You know. Yeah. Well, people that missed. I always tell people like uh, in the Lower East Side when they were like, "Man, I miss the old days, man. I used to be junkies and all this stuff." I was like, "Really? New work." <laughs> Sounds great. You go to Jersey City. Junkies you really miss it. You, you go to Jersey City for the day. Yeah, you know? they ha- they have those attractions in other areas. You know? <laughs> they do. They really do. So coming out of uh, Atlanta at the time you did, I mean, the Black Crows who were originally Mr. Crow's Garden. I mean, they were they were active around that time. Did you did you know those guys th- at that point? Oh, uh, we I, we knew we I knew Chris mostly. I think he was part bouncing around the scene. He was a a record geek. Yes, you know. He's yeah. a record collector, so he loved music. I think that's what we kind of like. We hadn't seen each talk to each other in, like a long time, and it was just really great to just talk music, you know, talk about records and, and musicians and things. And it was really, it was very awesome. My wife was like, "Do you guys all? Is that how you talk about his music?" I was like, <laughs> pretty, "Pretty much." <laughs> pretty what much. Do you do? 
But yeah, he had a band, Mr. Crow's Garden, as you know, and uh, and we were all kind of my he his David Macias was like their manager, best friend, and he worked at the record bar. There's a place in the mall called mm-hmm. Record Bar, and my girlfriend was one of the managers of the record bar in Cumberland Mall, and then Lenox Square, and then Suzanne was one another one, and she had a her boyfriend had a band called Threshold of Pain, which is the guys I hung out with. Uh, like these metal heads. That sounds like a metal band, Threshold of Pain. Slayer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We would relax on Sunday afternoons by listening to Slayer. <laughs> We're just going to kill it clearly him. influenced your work. <laughs> clearly influenced your work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do love metal. You, you know, I think uh, yeah, I do love, I do love, I mean, uh, I think Black Sabbath is one of my favorite bands those, those guys are blue is got a blues influence to them clearly. sure absolutely absolutely I, ozzy's one of my one of my favorite vocal heroes you know i love how he sings but he's from birmingham england which is basically the milwaukee of england you know <laughs> factory ruffian factory town you know it's uh, true and uh, ozzy always talked about how music was his way out of that factory mundane way of life it was a kind of a similar experience for you coming out of milwaukee yeah, Milwaukee, you were taught to like, A, first you get a job at the factory, and then B, if you can lose a, lose a digit, you're fucking making it. You fucking nailed it, baby. <laughs> you get the disability, and then you get that. So, so yeah, I've been the same. I grew up in the same kind of place, you know. Were you inspired by the type of music that you were hearing and wanted to do through the music scene, or was it really your friend telling you, hey, I got this band driving a cry, and you're in it? Well, I had, I had, I, had, you know, in my in my spare time, I, uh, on the weekends, uh, there's a friend of mine. His name, he lived in Smyrna, Georgia, where I lived, and he was at a, he had a home studio. He did the dem- demos for the first Indigo Girls too. I think um, he owned a f- futon shop. His name's Frank French, and he was a drummer for the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, like as they, the mid '70s version of mm-hmm. it. And so I, I made demos with him. So of old prosecutor stuff and I was always writing uh anyway, you know, and that and the the demo that I did with him was the one I played for Tim when Tim asked me who the hell I was. I said, Well I made this demo and then we kinda learned the songs from that and we created a band out of that. At one time when Driver Craft first started we had like a, a a harmonica player, we had a steel we had a lap we had a slide player, we had acoustic player, we had we had like we had like a Jean Luc Pony flute player for a day. <laughs> I was like, whatever. I, I was like, release the vault. We gotta hear that. Yeah, I wish I could find it. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it was you know I'm a you know try to be you know if you I want to be I'm really into psychedelic music and so, but I'm more into psychedelia as a non-tonal. I'm more into a mental psychedelia where you're, you're, you're blending music, you're fucking with people's heads, you're challenging them to, 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 to appreciate something that maybe they shouldn't, you know, don't think they can appreciate more. It's just like, this is a psychedelic sound, like Lil Stevens thing, where you have like, the vocals are back, the drums are up, there's a guitar, there's a sitar sounding guitar, which is, I love that too, but I'm, I'm more into like mixed matching music to create a psychedelic like when I have my music on, I I like I bu- you know I buy iTunes, and I buy the records so that I can make playlists, random playlists, because I'll have Scott Jomplet on there, I'll have, you know Ozzy, I'll have 
you know, the Count Five. I'll have the Bo Brummels and Patty Smith and David Johansson and Johnny Thunders, of course. And then I'll, then I'll have like, you know, the Walkabouts and uh, Billie Eilish, you know, or something, you know, it's like totally, you know, totally random things like that. So I was, I was more interested in creating something that was like, that would challenge people's musical interpretations. I feel like the more doors you open to, to different types of music, the more unique it actually would feed into your own sound. Do you find that to be the case? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's hard to, it's hard to hide. I mean, I'm definitely like the hobbit of rock and roll. I'm a great thief. I've stolen everything I could steal. <laughs> it's very obvious if I point it out to you, like McDougal blues is a total ripoff of the dream syndicate. Outrageous <laughs> is, is, is Ray Charles. What I'd say I suck a blue is just a regular like southern riff, you know. A, a lot of I I can pretty much show you where everything's stolen from. Build a fire is smoking in the boys' room. It just you know all it's uh, it, it all gets seeps in, you know. It all seeps in. Mm -hmm. That's what everybody does. They take different influences and create their own thing. I mean, that's what rock. That's what art is. Yeah, I was talking to. I mean, to go back to I guess Amorica, but I was talking with uh rich the other day about uh, how much i really loved uh lions i love that record mm -hmm. and how he kind of thought was like his take on it was like he had a, it was a hard record to make because the don was and all that stuff and it was like it dawned on me like i have a record like that called whisper tames the lion i wasn't really that crazy about produced by anton fear rem had a record called fables of reconstruction that was kind of hard to do they did it in england and it was wasn't a great time so they're all kind of, you know, some some of our harder records, I think, are some of the more interesting ones, you know, uh, I think when we don't have complete control, sometimes that works out. I didn't know, I didn't know Lions was such a hard record to make for them, you know. I think it's a great record. It's got a lot of great tempos. It's got great sounds. Great. A little bit more experimental, like, you know, definitely the page influences of yeah. some of Rich's guitar licks. I think, Ian, you guys have talked about on, on the podcast, like it divides the fans a little bit, but I think there's yeah. definitely there's definitely a lot of songs so holistically that people like on the album. But it is so. it is definitely the most difficult record in their catalog to kind of break into, which I think is, is mm -hmm. ultimately the most rewarding thing about it. Once you crack the code, you're in there. And yeah. it's, it's got a lot to uh, deliver. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's got, you know, but, you know, Chris is, you know, I think one of the greatest American rock singers, you know, I mean, sure. You know, I told, you know, like Mitch Ryder, Bob Seger, you know, we have a lot of great American rock singers. I mean, I, I, of course, a lot of them came from a lot of our, our all of our favorites all come from England. You know, the Paul Rogers and Robert Plant and uh, yep. you know, Terry Reed and all the great rock singers. But I mean, as far as American rock singers go, I, I love that I can put down the needle anywhere on a Black Crows record. And, and, and I know it's our, I know it's Chris Robinson. I, I feel that way about myself. You know, people can always, they always tell. You know, I would yeah. definitely agree. Fortunately, I wish I wasn't the singer. You know, I, I'm only the singer by default but because I couldn't find a singer. But um, I'm, I'm working on that. I can hire a lead singer. Karaoke. Were you surprised that, you know, because your most commercially successful record was Fly Me Courageous. And it really, that and also the Black Crow's first album, Shake Your Moneymaker, came out around the same time. But both records didn't really fit entirely into what was going on in the overall rock scene. Were you surprised that it was so commercially successful? 
Well, ours was reasonably successful. It's a good record. You have to play it really loud. I discovered that the other day because I've been listening to it a little bit because I was, I think we passed some sort of anniversary, 30 years or something. Yes. I listened to it in my rental car the other day because I tried to learn one of my learn chain reaction, the song that's on there. And uh, it's not a great if you play it loud. If you don't play it loud, it doesn't sound great. It's kind of like sugar, you know, like Bob Mould sugar. You have to play it loud. When it says play loud, you kind of to hear, you know, we mixed a lot of those things really loud. I don't mix that way anymore, you know, so I can hear things a lot better now. But I mean, it was a that was a hard year for us because you know the Black Crows were um, they they were around in '86 too, in '87, '88, '89, '90. I mean, they were they were evolving and practicing and doing they were always doing demos and they found their niche and got their thing and they and they came out with this amazing product that sold six million records. You know, in the meantime, we were crisscrossing the country in a brown van. And our record company didn't know who we were. Like, like girls got like this. They got like the record company loved them, and management that loved them. You know, they're all this, all over the place. By the time we met it, why me? We were just you know ready. We we're ready for something to happen. I we I really envied their coherency of what their message was and their sound was and their how much their record company loved them and things like that. And it was really, it was like. Boom, you know, uh, and you know, I was very disgruntled with just about everything happening in my life. So it was, it was, it, I was, ours was, um, you know, Fly Me was successful, but it was nowhere near as successful as it, as it could have been if the record company would have really embraced us. But you know, we were on an island and they were like, it was you two, Tone Loke, you know, yeah, uh, Melissa Etheridge, you know, uh, they were dealing with multi-platinum things, and we were just this band from this accident from Georgia, you know, uh, that were weren't really even signed. We were signed by Kim Bowie before she got onto Island Records, so she brought us to Island. So the company never really felt like they they hired us, you know, really. Which is really, it was really weird, you know. And that's why it's so great to see the the this the Shake Your Money Maker tour that we just did. How mm-hmm. they just embrace it. They just come out and it's like kaboom. It's like just great and they're it's just so really great to witness it. The songs all in a row like that are just this hit after hit after hit. It's like good lord. It's like going to see like John Fogarty or something. It's like <laughs> oh I forgot about this one. Jeez, this was on this this on the record too. Shit. <laughs> You know, it's one of the better debut albums for a rock man, for sure. Oh, absolutely, top ten. You know, we weren't we weren't mature enough to be. You know, I I I wasn't groomed to be handsome, and you know, outgoing. You know, I just you know, first thing Island asked me to do was fix my teeth. I was like, I don't know. I went to a doctor. I said, you know, will that change the way I talk? He goes, probably, yeah. It seems like it seems like an odd request. <laughs> yeah. Well, I should have known right then. Like, well, I write all these songs. Like, hmm, maybe you should change your teeth. It's like, oh. who cares about the music? It's all about the look. I don't know. I mean, if it wouldn't have affected my singing, the doctor would have been. I might have done it, but I was like, I don't want to talk to you know. Like, I don't want to have like, <laughs> my son. I was like, well, my teeth's like good. 
I'm going straight to hell. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but your teams are amazing. <laughs> your support sounds like shit, but man, that's a yeah. great smile. Man, that is a killer smile. <laughs> All right. I wasn't sure if this was going to happen, but it looks like uh, my my co-host David is is trying to jump on here with us for a minute. Oh, so gonna bring, wow. Gonna bring him Dude, on. I get to shut up. So here he comes. Ladies Let's and see. gentlemen, please welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, David Hudson Coming joining us. to the show. Hi, David. Hey, David oh. Hudson. Easy. Hey, Kevin. How are you? Good morning. Good y'all morning. So, sorry, Good I'm at work morning. pushing drugs today, so I could only get on here for a second. You're what? Um, I said I'm a pharmacist, so I've been pushing drugs all day. So I'm just oh, oh, he's a drug dealer. Quick. He's a drug dealer. <laughs> That's what you're talking about, pot. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Kevin, what I wanted to ask you was, with uh, you know, an hour and a half up the road from Atlanta and Athens, in the early 80s, you had Love Track, Nylon, REM, B-52. Do you think the exposure that they brought to the state helped get you guys like you and the Georgia Satellites and Mary My Hope noticed? Definitely, yeah. I mean, it brought, brought record companies down here. Um, you know, well, you know, I heard of the B-52s from in Milwaukee. I had their first single. There was definitely chum in the water. You know, it was, you know, people were trying to sign Athens bands. But the first Atlanta and Atlanta Atlanta had the swimming pool cues, and then they had the um, then they had uh, Georgia Satellites. That was the next big thing they signed out of Atlanta. Atlanta and Athens, we were the first band and we were the first Atlanta band to really break Athens. You know, uh, it was very rare for an Atlanta band to break Athens. Athens bands would pack Atlanta bars. You know, the the Georgia the uh, the Georgia Tech and the Emory bars. You know, let's active and I mean, um, dream so real. Um, you know, we love tractor. They were huge in Atlanta, but it didn't go both ways. Atlanta, they did not like Atlanta rock and roll because we were more of a streetwise. We're a tougher streetwise kind of thing, you know. Um, Peter Buck was pretty much our only audience member for at least the, our first two or three shows in Atlanta, in Athens. <laughs> we like they'd be sitting there, be like, "Good job." They would disappear. Like, I think that was Peter Buck. He said, "Yeah, watch your show. It was really good." Yeah, but, but yeah, I, I, we got signed. Uh, we made actually we made our first record on uh, independent label here called Six Eighty Eight, which owned by which was owned by the nightclub Six Eighty Eight, and um, we put it out independently. Uh, went to New York, you know. Uh, but the girl who signed us was actually Kim Bowie was a friend of the people who own the record store here and she worked for Capitol Records at the time and she was getting, she got released from a contract and she was like, if I ever get signed, I want to take you with me. So uh, we kind of went through the back door, you know, we didn't really have a bidding more or anything like that for us. We just kind of said, and then she called us and, you know, three months later was like, I got, uh, I got a job at Island. You want to go there? I was like, okay. There were, there, there wasn't really any big, can't remember who was getting signed out of us out of Atlanta really or Athens. It was not a lot of huge record deals being made, you know. I mean, Guadalcanal. I think they were on Atlantic, maybe. I can't remember. Well, um, I'm sad. I, I I came to see you guys in Tuscaloosa, and obviously it got rain. You guys got rained out. Oh, you were um, there for the our famous notch. Yeah. I, it was it was so odd. It was like a heat index of like 110, and that thunderstorm came through. And it was like 80 degrees, and I was 
Ian, I'm probably just going to mute everything and listen because I got to get back to work. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, been listening to you since I was a junior in high school. Well, so, thank you, uh, man. All right, take care. Okay. All right, see you, David. Hey, David. All right, well, that's great that uh, David could stop by. So, Kevin, I did want to ask you about this current run you did with the Black Crows and how that all came to be all these years later, hitting the road with them for a little bit. Uh, I think it was Chris and Rich's idea to, you know, to do the first, uh, I don't know, the, we, my agent called and said, you want to open for the Black Crows in Atlanta? I said, yes. <laughs> of course. <laughs> don't you want to know if they offer you any money? I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Sounds like a great opportunity for us to get together and, you know, I'd love to play with them. You know, you know, I'd seen them, uh, you know, when I lived in New York, I saw them in New York and I saw them in Chicago. I, I've seen them, uh, the Chris Robinson Brotherhood. I've seen that uh, more than a few times as well. And those are great records, you know, a lot, a lot yeah. of those, those, are, those are my favorite yeah. records. So I was just like, I said yes. And then she came back the next week and was like, they offered you. Uh, like the little southern run they're doing, I was like, great. I said, yes. He said, don't, don't you want to? I like, whatever. I mean, it sounds like a great opportunity to. It was, they couldn't have been nicer and kinder, and it was inspiring to me. You know, it was inspiring. And uh, how were the shows for you? How was that whole experience? It was great. We did. A, we did really well. Did really well. Miami was really cool. Uh, we played to a lot of people who had never seen us. Uh, a lot of people who appreciated the a little of the history of us of, of you know Atlanta and the, the and it culminating in this perfect Atlanta thing where our old drummer Jeff Sullivan came who was in Mr. Coast Guard and was backstage and a lot of their old friends that they all went to high school together and it was it was a really great it was just a really great vibe and like I said just uh, you know we did what we do we just talked about music you know we didn't talk about hardly anything else except you know did you hear this guy and you know these guys and you know oh that record and, oh man no one's ever heard of mitch Ryder and uh, you know memphis experiment like that's a great record <laughs> my god when he got the memphis and he it was mitch Ryder with booker t basically like you know and we just get excited about that talk about that till you know kate you know something sound check comes up or something you know so i love music and chris i brought this magazine called uh you ever heard of beat instrumental magazine I have actually. It's a great magazine from the '60s, uh, all the way back to the Beatles, and then it, go, it went into through the '70s a little bit. But I brought a copy of that and gave it to 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 the crew, and and they were just having so much fun. And Chris was looking at it like, oh, all looking at the record reviews. Like, that's a five hundred dollar record. That's, <laughs> you know, that's a, a six hundred. impossible record. You unbelievable. It didn't even like. And then the reviews of it. So it's just, it was fun to geek out on on gear and uh, you know on uh, Rich's uh, guitar collection is just unbelievable. You know, all you know, he changes guitars every song. He's got a different thing for everything. So I mean, it, for me, it was a really it was like a really great summer camp. Seller Raiden texted me the sent me a picture or a video of me doing rock and roll with the crows, and I said it's just I just feel blessed to be able to drift in and out of these dreamscapes. You know, so I'm basically just a music fan that, that wanted to get backstage. So I became a reporter and then and then I wanted to get better access. So I became a roadie and then I wanted even better access. So I became a musician. And I was like, you know, I just I've just I've been worming my way backstage through various channels of the music industry. <laughs> you know, even I'm standing up there with Charlie Starr and Rich and their black cousin and Rick Richard. I'm just like, 
my friends high school probably think I'm so cool right now. <laughs> Something in my friends at Marshall High School, like, I'm like, see? It still all comes back to that. It. I made it backstage. <laughs> <laughs> How does that come about? Does Chris say, hey, Charlie's here. You guys all want to get together on stage and play a song? Like, how'd you put that together? It's like, I'm, I know my, like, I don't write a set list. Uh, I kind of keep a, a running thing in my mind about what the journey is. I have a rough sketch in my head about, so he, he wrote me like three weeks to a month before the tour started. It was like in Atlanta, I want to close with rock and roll by the velvet underground. And then he would little by little, he was like, I think we can get Charlie. And then I think maybe, we're... so it was kind of like, he knew he saw like, what's going to, like, we didn't do it. Any other city it was just Atlanta. Mm-hmm. It was just Atlanta. Right. So I think they're, you know, we have it in there. We have the same kind of like a basic outline of how this should go down, you know, which is really, but the fact when he texted me, he wanted to do rock and roll. I told him it was so weird. Just like three weeks before that, me and Tim were learning the Mitch Ryder version, like and the Mitch Ryder version of rock and roll. If you ever heard it, it's Lou Reed's favorite version of rock and roll. It's like a Hmm. Brownfield station version of rock and roll. Mitch Ryder's version of rock and roll is Lou Reed's. He said that's the preeminent version of rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, I want to check. I'm not a huge fan of the Velvet Underground's version of that song. To be honest with you, I'm gonna have to check this out. Yeah. Well, Kevin, I, I I greatly appreciate you spending so much time with us. And before we let you go, I just want to kind of ask you, what's next? What's on the horizon? I'm obviously the shows with Peter Buck, but uh, you know, hitting the studio anytime soon or anything anything like that. Well, I have a new record coming out in October called "Think About It," and it's uh, it's I made it, I recorded it with uh, David Barbie in Athens. Uh, started it three years ago, and uh. It features Peter Buck, of course, on three or four songs. The first part, the first side one is done with uh, Colonel Bruce Hampton's uh, rhythm section, Kevin Scott and Darren Stanley on bass and drums. It's like like stand-up bass and drums and me. like It's kind of spoken word a little bit. Laura Joe Metz plays on it. It's got string sections on it. So the B side, we couldn't get those guys back because of the pandemic. So we had Brad... Morgan played drums on the side two on four songs. And then Bill Berry played on one song. And uh, Peter played on some of the stuff. And uh, we have a flute player. Cool. Bring him back flute. You know? There we go. Back to the beginning, man. Back to the beginning. You know, I was thinking, you know, I was thinking about a Saturday Night Live skit with all the flute players sitting in a, in a Starbucks. Nobody <laughs> <laughs> wants flute anymore. <laughs> it's like the guy from Fireball and the guy from Marshall Tucker and like uh, you know uh, the guy you know and uh, you, you know, couldn't have a '70s rock radio hit without flute in it, man. Well, you know it would seem so. My first my first concert was Fireball opening for Marshall Tucker, and I was drunk on Mountain Dew. <laughs> And vodka that I drank out of a wine boda. <laughs> that was a that must have been a that must have been a flute fest. <laughs> it was flute at 140 dB. It was fucking <laughs> all the flute you could possibly it want. It was more flute than I, I, I. It's taken me 50 years to want to readdress the flute. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, Kevin, I really appreciate you coming on. We typically end the podcast with a playout song, and when we have a guest on, we do let the guest choose the song. So. Please, uh, any song you like to play us out. I would do the Mitch Ryder uh, rock and roll. All right. Yeah. If you guys can find that. 
Right. You know, I love Mitch Ryder, man. Bruce Springsteen turned me on the Mitch Ryder, you know, and turned me on the Dirty Angels and turned me on, you know, lineage. So this is an example of lineage. And then Chris bringing rock and roll up. And then so it was just, I think that'd be a perfect closer. Excellent. Excellent choice. All right. Thank you, Kevin, for coming on and joining us. We're going to play out with Mitch Ryder's version of the Velvet Underground's Rock and Roll, and we will see everybody next time. Stay tall, everybody.
It was all. 